Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, September 28th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. Ezekiel's vision in the Jerusalem temple concludes, even as he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple entirely, the promise of a restored remnant brings gospel comfort. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek. Pastor Filipek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple, and greetings and welcomes to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Filipek, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. Ezekiel chapter 11 concludes this vision that began back in chapter 8. What should we know about that vision, Ezekiel's ministry, that'll help us as we look at this chapter today? Certainly. So just a reminder that Ezekiel, in fact, a good portion of Jerusalem at this point, has been exiled. In terms of Ezekiel's second vision that began in chapter 8, this is now his conclusion to that, and it is a response to both the remnant who remains in exile in Babylon and to those leaders who were left behind in Jerusalem or appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And they were left behind or appointed because of, again, in about 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar II began to carry out a secondary military campaign where he defeated Pharaoh Necho in the battle. And then he he subsequently after that invaded Judah as Jehoiakim of Judah, the king there, rebelled against the Babylonian rule. So when Nebuchadnezzar came in and captured the city over a period of three months, he then pillaged Jerusalem and its Solomonic temple. Well, at that time then, Nebuchadnezzar decided to take Jehoiakim, his successor, the the son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin captive, along with his court officials and many other inhabitants of Jerusalem at that time, including Ezekiel. All of them have been exiled to Babylon at this point. Meanwhile, Nebuchadnezzar has appointed and installed a new king, Zedekiah, ruler of Jerusalem, and those who are left in the city are there and had not been taken captive. But we must note, in all of the conquest prior to this, it is not somehow Nebuchadnezzar and his army that are the big players and they're the strongest, so they're conquering everything. Actually, the Lord's hand is behind all of this. We must note, it's not Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar's doing, rather, it's the Lord allowing this destruction to fall upon the southern kingdom, just like he did the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., because of the gross sins of idolatry. Judah then is being judged by God, using the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, because Judah has failed to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. They have worshipped, they have whored after all the false Canaanite gods, Dagon, Molech, Baal, Ashtoreth. They've even brought these disgusting statues into the Lord's temple, set them up, and there has begun pagan worship within the Lord's house. So Ezekiel 8 through Ezekiel 10 there has been primarily focused on the temple, the Lord's glory in the temple, the idolatry that's happening, God's judgment upon the temple, ending of course in God departing, his glory departing from the temple. In chapter 10, 15 and following, the Lord is leaving the temple, the glory of the Lord God's physical presence. And now in chapter 11, our text today, God's eye of judgment turns toward the city itself. So in chapter 11, we're actually dealing with not just religious practices in Jerusalem and the temple, but actually the, the rulers, the leaders, the members of nobility that are left in Jerusalem. And this second vision is 
right around five years after that first siege of Jerusalem. So we're talking about 592 BC here. So Ezekiel's got this vision here in chapter 11. We got the conclusion, but again, as you said, a, a focus in or a shift in focus here, talking more about the leaders and the fallout of everything that's been happening in the temple. How's that going to impact Jerusalem as a whole? And and I do think that that this chapter, although it, it you know it's a nice contained unit, there are a couple of sections that that divide up pretty nicely. So I'm going to read just the first 12 verses to get us started here in Ezekiel chapter 11. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat. And this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it, and give you into the hands of foreigners, and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. All right, that's Ezekiel 11, verses 1 to 12, the first section where Ezekiel is given to speak to these leaders of the people. So, Pastor Philippek, let's just set the context here. Uh, where does the Spirit of the Lord take Ezekiel? What does he see there at the beginning of our text? Sure. So the first place that the Spirit takes Ezekiel is to the east gate of the house of the Lord, meaning the temple. This is very important because the temple here, as it has functioned, has been the dwelling place of God among his people. Albeit behind the Holy of Holies, only to be accessed by the high priest once a year, but nevertheless, God has been in the midst of his people. He has been with his people. And the only way that you ever have access to God is through the east. And I find this very interesting when they set up camp, when they set up camp both around the temple and in the city, and as they're traveling even to there throughout the Exodus and Numbers, when they're setting up camp, the tribes are, are encamped around that. And the only way to get in to the presence of God is through Judah. And Judah's camped in the east of the tabernacle. Well, wouldn't you know it? The big city, the, the inhabitants of Judah is none other than the crown city of Jerusalem where the temple is. So you want to get to God, you got to go through Judah. It's, it's in the east. And the interesting thing as well is this goes all the way back to the direction where God kicked Adam and his wife out of the garden, placed the cherubs with the east. So east here is the very big indicator of God and his glory and his presence. And that is what has just happened. The glory of God in 10 has sort of departed out of that east gate. And so Israel and Judah, both now having gone through an exile, Ezekiel is transported there to see what has happened. So what has happened is God's glory has departed there out of the east gate. And if I'm facing east, Pastor Apple, then off to the east, I also see the Mount of Olives. And this is significant because the, the Mount of Olives you know, in Jerusalem plays a big factor in the God-made flesh, you know, the presence of God in our midst, in the flesh of Jesus Christ, because down the Mount of Olives, Jesus will come, the glory of God, and I know I'm sort of short-circuiting things here, but the glory of God will reappear 
as it as it comes back down the Mount of Olives and Jesus rides into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday to begin his Passion Week. Equally, the Mount of Olives will come into play yet again in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying. And finally, at the resurrection, after Jesus has been on the earth 40 days, that 50th day, you know, Pentecost, right in between that 40th day of ascension there, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives according to Acts chapter 1, and that is the place of the ascension of God's glory, uh, the Mount of Olives there. So this is tracking that whole thought from Old Testament to New Testament, fulfilled in Christ and the glory of God. So Ezekiel is standing there, having had the glory of departed, the Lord depart out of that. Now he's looking at the city toward the Mount of Olives. Okay, so just to, because we did kind of jump really quickly all the way to the New Testament, which is yeah. fine. <laughs> but just to make sure we're, we're tracking here, the, and we haven't, when we get to the end of chapter 11, we're actually going to see the glory of the Lord leave the city of Jerusalem and go to the Mount of Olives. He's He's been, you know, working his way there sort of in stages. He, he stood on the threshold for a while. He's at the East Gate currently, and he's going to go to the Mount of Olives. So I think the, the point you're making is, What's we're seeing the glory leaving here in Ezekiel, we're going to see the glory return in in the person of Jesus. I mean, I, we should probably connect that what he says about his own body being the temple here as well, and and so that the journey that Jesus takes, you know, quite physically as he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and what he chooses to do in his ascension, all of this is, I mean, the Lord fulfilling, bringing to completion what's happening here in Ezekiel. Is that is that our point? Yeah, that will be our point. I haven't made the point. I've just made. <laughs> I've just mainly put the hooks up on the wall so that later, right. as we go through the text, we can hang our hats properly on those hooks, even right. including the Lord's presence when we talk about the sanctuary and how that remains later on in the text. But that will be exactly the point that we are making. Okay. All right. So we we got that in the back of our minds. We got the hook set. We're going to throw the hat on him in a little while. So he's at the East Gate. That's where the this part of the vision starts. And he sees 25 men. Now, he had seen 25 men, a group of 25, back in the first part of the vision, back in Ezekiel 8. But based on the, the names of the people and the function of the people here, it sounds like this is a different group of 25. Who Who are these people that he's seeing at the East Gate? Yeah, so this is a different group than mentioned in chapter 8. New people who have assumed the position of influence in Jerusalem as a result of the Jerusalem seas and the exile. Um, these leaders are only one of them, I will say. Only one of them is certainly recognizable from reading chapter 8. And you might even think, ah, see, it's the same group from um, John Isaiah. But... That one in eight, John Isaiah has a different father, if you look back, than this John Isaiah. So what we see here is, is even though we have a similar name, it's a different group of people. And we have not really encountered a Pelatiah at all up until this point. So we have new leaders um, who have taken uh, the throne as of Jerusalem siege. But these leaders are just as bad I would say perhaps worse than those who have gone before. They are just certainly as idolatrous, but even more pompous and smug and arrogant because they didn't go into exile. Oh, no, no, no. They are the ones who stay. They are the ones who are in the city and everybody else went off. So they're seeing themselves as the cream of the crop, if you will, the, the top of the top. We are God's chosen ones, and nothing will happen to us. We are great in this city. We are fine. So they are smug. They are pompous. They are arrogant. And they're spreading that smug, pompous, idolatrous arrogance among the people who remain. They're giving wicked counsel of peace and prosperity, at least to a degree, right? Their wicked counsel, as we saw, is... Oh, no, 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 no. You don't need to build houses. Yeah, the, Jerusalem is gonna, is a prosperous place the way that it is now that all of those bad people went and, and we are safe in the city. All their houses are abandoned. So we, we can take whatever we want. We are secure. And then they compare themselves to like the meat, right? We're the choice meat. Unlike those scraps who went away into exile. Uh, we're the true house of Israel. And as such, the choicest of meats. So, so don't worry, people in Jerusalem. We're the meat and we're protected by our cauldron or in you know, the walls of Jerusalem. So this is kind of the lay of the land of these 25 men. They are giving um, peace and prosperity 
that things are going well and the Lord is somewhat pleased with them and nothing bad's going to befall them, unlike all those, you know, scraps of meat who went into exile. But actually, this council is extremely wicked because our Lord has promised that if they did not obey way back in Joshua, if they did not obey the word of the Lord and live according to his statutes and promises, the commandments he gave them, then they would not live long in the land. They would go back into exile. They would go into slavery. The land would vomit them out and he would not be able to dwell among his people. Sin would have cut them off again, but they are actually prophesying and telling the people somewhat contrary to to that thought. So I want to talk just briefly, Pastor Philippek, a little bit more just to make sure I understand their their slogan that's there in verse 3, because this is not a slogan that I think I've ever encountered, or one that certainly isn't popular in Smithville, Texas. So the the time is not near to build houses. So I, that that makes sense. You know, you know, don't worry, we're going to be fine. You don't have to worry about building a house, say, in Babylon later because you're in exile. Everything's cool. But then the, you know, the city's the cauldron and we are the meat. As I was, I was trying to think of perhaps a, a more modern phrase that fit, you you took one that I had thought of, the cream of the crop, <laughs> is I think kind of the, the maybe a similar saying that we've got today. They're basically saying, we didn't get taken away in that first exile. And so we're safe here in the, I don't know if we can extend, you know, in the barn and we're the cream of the crop. So we're, we're fine. No problem. As long as we're here, we're protected. God must love us. We we must be okay because we're still here. Is that that kind of what this phrase, you know, the city's the cauldron, we are the meat, is that the idea? That is exactly the idea. They're the choicest cuts of meat. They're the cream of the crop. They're the ones who have God's favor. And so how do they know they're safe and secure? The cauldron, the city walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself will protect them. So they don't need to worry. They remain in Jerusalem. Everybody else who went away does need to worry. It, it seems to fit in very nicely then with that, the slogan that Jeremiah says is going on in Jerusalem in, in Jeremiah chapter seven, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They think that as long as they're there in Jerusalem with the city walls and the temple there, they're safe. And God has a word for that. He gives it to Ezekiel. I, I love I love the way that this comes in, even in the English there in verse five, you know, they're saying this, they think they know this. And then the Lord says, so you think. And and even as he he turns that phrase of theirs on its head to, to be one of judgment rather than the security they think they have, how does the Lord do that in the, the words that he gives Ezekiel to speak? So you are absolutely right with paralleling this with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the most favorable of the contemporary prophets that go along with Ezekiel in the same time. So they are prophesying a similar message, and you should hear Ezekiel's word resonating with Jeremiah's word. So the Lord then uses this word of Ezekiel, knowing full well what the people are thinking. Uh, He uses this words of cauldron and meat and this thought of, oh, we're the true house of Israel and sort of turns it on their head. Because in in chapter 11, verse 5, he says, oh, you think, oh, house of Israel, kind of that, oh, really? You're, you're the ones who are choice. So let me tell you how this really is, leaders of Jerusalem. Let me tell you what's really happening. So he says, I know what comes into your mind. Now, that is a, that is a bit startling, don't you think? And it is, it is a very big connection with what perhaps our listeners are more familiar with in the person and work of Jesus. And again, we're going we're gonna to parallel these nicely. But the hearer might very well think of at this point how Jesus knowing that the Pharisees are grumbling in their hearts at the healing of the paralytic, who is this only God can forgive sins alone. This is blasphemy. And the text is Jesus, knowing what is in their heart, says to them. So you have a God who knows what's on your mind. No secrets are hid from him, no matter how arrogant or pious they might be, no matter what you are doing in secret, our Lord is going to execute judgment knowing full well what's in your heart and what you have done. And what is in their heart is this idea of being number one, cream of the crop, 
over and against everybody else at everyone else's expense. So they have taken even those in the city. They have made those in the city fall both physically and spiritually, putting some to death physically and others being led into idolatry. They have taken those who are in the city and they haven't. What have they done with the meat that's in the city? They've slain it. They've actually become you think you're your meat. You've actually become the butcher, buddy. Uh, and that's kind of what our Lord is focusing on is you think you're meat, but you're actually the one who brings death and destruction within the cauldron. You're the problem of all of this. And so you have taken the meat in the city, those who would rely on me and trust me, and you have put them to death physically and spiritually. And so there's a judgment that's going to be brought upon them. Then in, in verse eight, you know, you fear the sword, but guess what? I will bring the sword upon you. So they think they're safe and secure. But God's going to execute his judgment upon them. You're not safe and secure in that cauldron. You who are butchers, God's going to deal with your sin and your idolatry right here and right now. And Ezekiel is bringing this vision to you. So this is what you're going to preach to them. Not peace and security, but death and destruction to those who are still practicing idolatry wholeheartedly. These leaders in Jerusalem, you're going to bring judgment upon them through my words that I give to you. I will bring that sword, declares the Lord. I will I will bring you out of the midst of it all, and I will give this you into the hands of foreigners. I will execute judgments upon you. So Babylon, you think you're safe? You're not safe. I'm going to bring Babylon back there, and Babylon's going to execute judgment upon you, and it will be by my word according to it. This is what I speak to you, judgment, when you're speaking peace and prosperity. Hmm. I mean, that, that fits very nicely with the historical context, again, you know, around 592 BC, which wasn't the most peaceful time by any stretch of the imagination. But given the, the surrounding years, you know, their prior and what they'd gone through in that first Babylonian exile and what is to come as Ezekiel's prophesying, that is a time of reasonable security, at least in a political historical sense for the people of Jerusalem. Things seem to be okay with Babylon right now. And so, you know, to think, hey, we're in this cauldron, we're okay, would fit very nicely. And and Ezekiel brings this message that, you know, just totally shatters that, which again, as you pointed out, fits perfectly with what Jeremiah is preaching as well. They're in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's preaching this in Babylon. Pastor Philippek, again, another thing that stood out to me as you were talking as well is, and it's very clear in the text, which you mentioned in your introduction, and notice how the Lord he takes credit for all that's going to happen. This is not Nebuchadnezzar who's going to come and bring the sword upon you. This is actually the Lord that's going to come and bring the sword upon his own people, which is a very striking thing. We, we encounter it throughout Jeremiah and several of the minor prophets we've been looking at recently in the same context. Ezekiel preaches the same thing. One of, one of the, the questions that I had as you were, you're reading with this attitude that we see from the leaders, and it certainly connected their idolatry, how, how might this same sort of uh, presumptuous thinking, this, you know, we're the cream of the crop, we're safe sort of thinking, come up for Christians today? Where, where do you see that kind of temptation in our lives as Christians still? I think very much in America, you can parallel this with the preaching of prosperity. So if you do this or do that, if you... <sighs> sell all your cars and reduce it to one. You know, you've heard this from televangelists in in preaching on the Luke text about uh, the rich man and all that is going on or or the preaching of Mark chapter 10 where the the rich man, the rich young ruler, all that I've done, all of these I've kept since I was a boy, right? He thinks that God's favor is upon him because things seem to be going well. So the preaching of prosperity in America, anytime somebody puts the finger on, well, God must be happy with you because you have this car, you have this house, this is going in your favor, this is all that. See, there it is. Versus the guy who's suffering, we tend to draw a delineated line against, well, that guy must be doing something wrong. The Lord must be punishing them. And you hear this in all kinds of televangelists. You hear this uh, preached throughout America, this prosperity gospel. But actually, our Lord is turning this on its head, saying, no, 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 no. Here in Ezekiel, you want to know where God is at work. He's actually at work here in Ezekiel among the exiles, among those who are in the midst of suffering. And when we think about this, um, God is a God who enters into our flesh and he's no stranger to suffering. 
In fact, he's our suffering servant. He takes all sin, all suffering upon himself. He's a man of sorrows. He is faithful unto death, even death upon the cross. And he calls Christians to come and follow him. So the the way of Christ is a way that doesn't avoid suffering and say, oh, because I have prosperity, I now have God's favor. No, it is a way of suffering. Jesus himself says to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Trouble is the norm. Sin, suffering, and death, that's the expectation. But you can take heart, for I have overcome the world. And how has he overcome it? By his suffering. So you cannot parallel the fact that, oh, I've I've got some good things going on right now, so God must be really happy with me. I must be pleased. I must be pleasing to God. I must have his favor. Versus someone who maybe might be going through an illness saying, I must have done something wrong. No, 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 no. The Lord is with you even in the midst of suffering. And we get this so confused here, even in America. Yeah, that's. I think that's a fantastic application of the same temptation that faced the people of Judah in Ezekiel 11 that faces us still today, and the Lord would have us to find his favor, not in anything that we do or our outward circumstances, but in his word, his word that he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll hear more of that, more very specific gospel as we continue the text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel 11 with Pastor Adam Philippek, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 28th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 1 to 25, with Pastor Adam Filipek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, on the on the first side of the break, we talked through verses 1 to 12. Let's pick up the rest of the chapter now. We start in verse 13. And it came to pass, while I was prophesying, that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, to us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off the nation far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 11, verses 13 to 25. Pastor Philippek, in verse 13, Ezekiel sees as a part of this vision that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died, and that hits him pretty hard. He falls down on his face, and he, he cries out to the Lord, asking about the full end of, of Israel. Why does this hit him so hard? Yeah, so 
the actual prophecy given to Ezekiel did not include instantly the death of Pelatiah. So as he's proclaiming the word in this vision, Pelatiah falls dead. And Ezekiel is especially shocked, not merely because the Lord hadn't given him a precursory knowledge that he may have thought, oh, okay, now I know it's up. I know what to expect. That's part of it. But the larger part of it is actually a play on Pelatiah's name itself. It can be translated two ways. God has rescued his people or God rescues the remnant. Either one of those translations. But Pelatiah's name in and of itself is reminiscent of those who are in exile, the remnant. So as our Lord has been proclaiming his word of judgment for the last 11 chapters, now he speaks again, and there have only been little glimmers of bright hope of the gospel there. We really haven't heard much, but the law proclaimed to a stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted people. And so as Ezekiel is saying these words in the vision, all of a sudden he falls dead, and Ezekiel is left wondering, the one whose name is, is reminiscent and, and typifies the, the remnant is now dead? What is going to happen to the remnant of God? Will you, O Lord, make an end of the full remnant of Israel now that, now that this man whose name is remnant lies dead before me? What's going to happen to the promise of God all the way back to Genesis 3.15 with the crushing of the head and the restoration of crushing of the head of the serpent and the restoration of the presence of God, the very promised land. What is happening now that God's glory is going to depart? And even this man whose name is remnant lies before me dead. As the, the Lord has shown him the full weight of his law and Ezekiel, is his heart and his concern is for the people of God whom he prophesies to. to you know, you see Abra, you see this as well the heart of the prophet for the people and what's going to happen to God's promise and the people if God is going to remain faithful to his word as he as judgment is executed, for instance, on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham pleads, you know, Lord, if, if there are 50 righteous, 40, 30, you know, 10 righteous people, and there aren't, there aren't even 10, but Abraham's heart is for, for Lot and those relatives and things like that. And so in all of, in all of that thought, you know, there, there's this heart of the prophet for no destruction to come upon it, the people of God. You see Moses in, at Sinai, the golden calf in the in the wilderness, right? Moses is up on the mountain and he sees what's going on down there while, while speaking to Moses, while giving him the written tablets of stone as well as the, the verbal commands to make the tabernacle. And he says, go down to your people. You know, he uses very specific words words because you're supposed to be my people but he says no go down to your people and, and Moses is like Lord they are your people and and Moses intercedes from them for him and that's what Ezekiel is sent to do to sort of intercede and his heart is for them but God is going to break open his judgment upon Israel and and with Pelatiah's death it, it prompts in Ezekiel's mind uh, and his heart you know, the word of promise Lord are you going to be faithful to this or is this the end even of the remnant you know, Ezekiel here, he's, and at least in what I've read, and, and from what I've seen, he's often seen as a, a prophet who doesn't share his emotions all that often, you know, which stands in, in contrast to, say, Jeremiah, who kind of wears his heart on his sleeve and, and is very open with his his grief. He pours it out before the Lord on, on several occasions. You don't see that from Ezekiel all that often, but you do get cases like we have here where, where he will respond. You know, it's not that he simply does it, but he, he responds, he comes back at the Lord in this intercessory mode, which I, I find very encouraging to see that in the prophet Ezekiel, how he stands in that line. And and we've heard him do this before in chapter nine, at, toward the end of that chapter, where those six destroyers are sent into the city of Jerusalem to, you know, to take anybody who's not faithful, who's idolatrous. The Ezekiel asks there, you know, are you going to destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of wrath? And when the Lord answers in chapter 9, he he doesn't really give much hope within his answer. There is that man who's clothed in linen who goes and marks the towel on the foreheads of the people who are faithful. And he comes back and says, I did my job. So there's a glimmer of hope there, but it's not from the Lord's word at that point. That changes here in Ezekiel 11. 
and and now as as you said earlier pastor philippek this glimmer of the remnant that's been it's cropped up a few places really begins to shine forth in chapter 11 how does how does the lord begin to answer ezekiel's question in verses 14 and following yeah so this is the first fullness of the gospel we get the first fullness of god's word of salvation and his promised even to a stiff-necked idolatrous people who are away in exile and his word to ezekiel are you know kind of are you going to make a full end of the remnant of Israel is a resounding, uh, I'll just summarize it this way, no. <laughs> and what I, what I mean by that is this whole time, you know, all the leaders are saying, we're safe and secure. We're the ones, all of this sort of stuff. But God turns it in and says, it's not the leaders. It's, it's actually not these who think they're the choicest of meats, these butchers that think they're safe within the cauldron. It's actually you who are in exile from you, from your you, the remnant. And I'll just jump forward to a minute to hang a little hat from you. I will restore. I will bring back. And from you, I will I will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. I will bring the promised Messiah out of not these people in Jerusalem who remain, but out of the remnant out of those whom I bring back from you shall come the promised Messiah. So the, the people there in Jerusalem think it, they're the ones who are safe, secure, wonderful, have the Lord's favor. But God actually says, no, it's the ones to who you're prophesying to right now, Ezekiel. So the word of the Lord comes to him and notice the, the tender heart. Son of man. Your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel. Notice the contrast between the house of Israel and Jerusalem. We've used, oh, house of Israel. And now God calling those in exile and Ezekiel himself, the house of Israel. The, that those who are inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, you know, go far from the Lord. Now notice the words that our Lord speaks in 16 especially. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off from the nations, though I have scattered them among the countries, and here's the here's the beauty, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Now, that's the start of this. And when you think about that, Pastor Apple, um, that word is such a comfort to the people of God who are in exile because the presence of God has always been in the temple. God has desired to dwell with his people and he has been there for them in that stone building. Behind the 45-foot curtain, the glory of the Lord has dwelled. And yet he has told them that even though they are far, even though they don't have any access to that temple, even though they may feel like they are far off from God, the fact of the matter is they are not far off from God. He's been there the whole time. He has kept them. He has been their sanctuary. He has been their dwelling place. He has dwelt with them even in exile. And you think, whoa, wait a minute, because the temple is all about God's presence dwelling in his people. But God is saying here he is dwelling in the midst of his people who are in exile. So, so how has he been a sanctuary? And that's really the question of this. And how he's been a sanctuary is that Ezekiel continues to speak the word of the Lord to them. He continues to comfort them. He continued with the gospel, even as he continues to proclaim the law to them by which they are confronted with their sin and confess their sin. So the Lord has kept them. The Lord has dwelt in their midst because his word has not departed from them. The prophet Ezekiel has continually proclaimed that word of the Lord to them. And in that hearing of the word, God has dwelt in their midst. I mean, what a comfort to know that though I don't feel like I can access God because he's way in Jerusalem, God hasn't abandoned me. God hasn't forsaken me. He's still here, veiled in his word. We have the same comfort as Christians. We have the same word that comes to us. And so many times when we feel like we have nothing at all going right for us, that we are in the midst of suffering 
and that somehow God has turned his wrath on us and he will never answer us and maybe perhaps even destroy us because, man, look at our neighbor who's got all that stuff and we have nothing and we're in the midst of suffering. We might ask the same questions. Has God abandoned me? Has God forsaken me? But the word has still remained. God has been a sanctuary for his people by the proclamation of the word back in Ezekiel to the remnant who is suffering and pain and torture in exile. And God has been faithful through the preaching of his word to us here today, even in the midst of our suffering. And it's the same word. It's the same promise. In the Old Testament, it was the the one who was going to come to crush the head of the serpent. In the New Testament, it is the one who has come. But it's the same word, the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ who has continually proclaimed his word of promise, both to the people of old and to the people today, both people of God, both hearing the word of the Lord in the midst of their suffering and both knowing that God has not abandoned them. He has not forsaken them. He is in their midst because his word is among them. The, the tying together the sanctuary here to the word that's being preached by Ezekiel, I think is a fantastic connection. And certainly it'd be very applicable to us today as you were as you were just saying, that I love the the connection. Back in chapter five, Ezekiel was told to cut his hair off as a sign, and and then do various things with each third of it was going to be destroyed in one way or another as a a sign of what was going to happen there in Jerusalem with the coming siege and destruction under Nebuchadnezzar. But he he took at that moment, and this is one of those veiled hints of the remnant in the previous chapters. He was told to take just a handful of those hairs. And tuck it close to his his himself and in, in his robe. And we talked about in Ezekiel five how you know that that's a reminder that how does the Lord hold people close to Himself or or to use the language of chapter eleven? How does He provide a sanctuary? Is through the Word, the Word that the prophet speaks, and, and that same Word is still proclaimed to you and me as our sanctuary, our refuge today. No matter where we may be scattered, that that word that is our sanctuary that delivers to us Jesus Christ. So we're we're starting to hang some of those hats here Pastor Philippic. Let's let's keep moving as as the as the text continues. One of the images that that comes up, one of the things the Lord says he's going to do is he's going to give his people one heart, a new spirit, a new heart. And this is going to be language that the prophet will repeat later in his in his prophecy, but I think it's in chapter 36 or so. It comes up here already in chapter 11. What's what's being said here with the new heart, the new spirit that the Lord's going to give his people? Absolutely. So the first part of that promise is to be a sanctuary. But the second the second part of that promise is having been a sanctuary to them through his word there, he will bring them back. The promise of Genesis 3.15 remains. They will not remain scattered. He will assemble them, those who are scattered, and he will give them the land promised to Israel. So this promise of Genesis 3.15 is still going to be fulfilled. They will see the, the glory of the Lord yet return. And when the glory of the Lord returns, something profound will happen to the people of God who have constantly been separated and cut off from him by their sin. He's going to perform heart surgery, if you will. He's going to take that heart of stone. Now, this should ring in the hearer's ears. A heart of stone is, is being somewhat synonymous with hard-hearted. And that's reminiscent then of Pharaoh, who was so dead set on his own ways and whatever he wanted to do, he refused to listen to the Lord. He was so set in his own ways that he was just going to, he was hell bent, so to speak, on his own sin and on his own ways. And so despite what the Lord said and despite what the Lord did, he was just going to do it. Now, this is the same problem with those in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem right now, they are so bent on doing whatever they want to do. They're not listening to Jeremiah prophesy to them. So the same words that got spoken to Pharaoh, then you will know that I am the Lord, got spoken to, to um, Pelatiah and his whole entourage. Then when I do this, execute judgment, you will know that I am the Lord. But those who are having a hard heart and are repentant, they're in exile. God's going to do something new for them. He's going to remove that stubborn heart, that heart that's set on sin and that heart that is set on being stiff neck and doing whatever he they want to do. He's going to remove that individual heart 
of his people. And God is going to bring about in the midst of his people, not an individual heart that focuses on whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it and whatever I think is right, but rather a collective heart, one heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And we don't mean flesh in the bad sense here of like a sinful nature. No, the heart, that would be the heart of stone. The heart of flesh is a heart that beats for God, a heart that actually fears, loves, and trusts in God above all things that the heart or the, the mind, being of one mind, St. Paul talks about. It's the same sort of thought. And that is the mind of, of actually Israel reduced to one. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who carried out all things according to the will of his Father, who took uh, his, our sin upon himself, became sin, and was hung upon the tree. It is written, cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree, and who submitted his, himself to the will of the Father, being obedient unto death, even death upon the cross, seeking to follow the Lord and his word, to fear, love, and trust in the Father's word above all things. That heart is the heart that is going to be placed in the people as they return. They will no longer be against God. No, they will be together with God. They will His mind, his heart, his joy will now be their mind, their heart, their joy. So those who create, who pray, create in me a clean heart. Or we who sing, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, are actually given a clean heart, a new heart, the heart of God, the heart of flesh that walks by his statutes, that keeps his rules, that obeys them even to the point of when we reject them and fail. Still in repentance and faith, we cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And that spirit, that new heart is put within us that clings to God. He is our hope. He is our salvation. And this is the heart, not just of one person, but the collective body, the remnant, the people of God, both then and now who cling to God. This language of, you know, giving one heart, replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, or a dead heart with a living heart, I've often connected to the way Jesus will speak in the Gospels. I think he does it on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places as well, where he talks about, you know, if if certain part of your body causes you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out, because it's better to go into eternal life, you know, maimed than to go with a full body into the fire of hell. And and this language of of a if I can say a heart transplant, I think is is ultimately what all that language of Jesus is driving at that. That what what has to be replaced in us finally is is not a leg or an eye or an arm or a hand, but it's ultimately that heart, and and that's his job to do. You know, the heart that we have, as as Jesus describes it in the Gospels as well, is is one that's totally infected with sin. I mean, every every evil thing comes from the heart. Jesus says, and so he's got to be the one to give us this new heart, this clean heart. And, and it's only by that work that this, this transformation takes place that we, you know, as, as Ezekiel preaches, you know, that walk in the statutes, keep the rules, that we, we start to do the commandments of God only because he's the one that's given us this clean heart. And I, I mean, I, oh, the, again, we're starting to hang the hat on those, on those hooks here. Pastor Philippic, the, the last, I think, the section here really helps us to draw a lot of this together. Ezekiel's heard these promises of God. So the, this gospel promise in the midst of all this judgment, and then he sees the vision conclude. And, and on the one hand, you know, it is a, a very sobering reality that he sees. The cherubim, this, this amazing throne of God, lifts up again, and the glory of the Lord goes with this chariot, and it goes out to the mountain on the east side of the city, which I think you said was the Mount of Olives earlier. That's the conclusion of the vision. It's a, it is a moment of judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. And, and yet, as we've been talking, when we combine it with these words of promise, I think there may be a little bit of hope to be found yet still, especially as we, you've laid all the groundwork for us. We've got about four minutes here on the morning. Help us to, to draw all of this together and, and from this vision, see the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So when they return from exile, they have not received the Lord's glory back in the second temple. It has remained apart from them. And you can read, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the of the city. But in all these things, the Lord still remains faithful to his promise because the word that is spoken to the people in which they hope and has become their sanctuary that has kept them and will create in them a new desire to live for, in, with, and under our Lord 
is the same word that became flesh, the same promise that was fulfilled, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when he has entered into the flesh, and when he has obeyed the law perfectly for us and desired only the will of the Father and became obedient unto death, then, he, then that glory entered into Jerusalem again, just as Ezekiel promised. He rode down the mountain into Jerusalem to bear the sins, not just of the remnant, but for us as well, the whole world. For on this word made flesh, this Jesus was laid the iniquity of us all. And that Lord, that Jesus, that glory of God was seen by even the Roman centurion, as he pierced the Lord's side after the earthquake, and he said, truly, this man is the son of God. Jesus, in the flesh of Jesus, there is the glory of God. He has tabernacled among us. He has temple has been destroyed. And yet after three days, that temple, that body of Christ was raised from the dead. And that word made flesh, yes, ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives and promises to come again in all glory in the east, which is also why we bury people east, facing the east, waiting for the resurrection, that great and day, glorious day when our Lord returns to raise our lowly bodies. We'll get to this in Ezekiel 37, the slain and the raising of God's people from the dead. But in the meantime, in the meantime, our Lord is not abandoned us even in the midst of exile. He has made a sanctuary among us where he creates in us a new heart, a clean heart through that same word preached to us, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of death, our Lord remains faithful to us in his word and sacrament. And so we run, Lord, I love the habitation of your house with a new heart in us. And our Lord forgives us and renews us and strengthens us saying, I forgive you. I baptize you. You do not belong to sin, death, or the devil. You belong to me. You are my child. And I will raise you up in a moment in a twinkling of an eye when I come again in glory to be with me so that where I am, there you will be also. Yeah, to be with to be with the Lord that that is the promise ultimately that that will be fulfilled again the glory has left the city but that's not the end of the story the the glory of the Lord it's is mobile he he can move and he does provide a sanctuary wherever he is present and he is present with you with me with his church in his word and sacrament providing that sanctuary for his people still just like he did for his people in exile in Ezekiel chapter 11 the Reverend Dr Adam Philippeck is the pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Philippek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>